We are going to start today's session with a return guest, Yanev Suisa, Managing Partner and Founder of SignWave Ventures. Yanev, welcome to the program, and uh, I know you are on vacation. I know a lot of people are on vacation at the end of the <laughs> summer, so <laughs> we'll do a short one today, and, but nonetheless, we're here, and uh, we look forward to chatting and catching up. Well, Sramana, you know I like speaking with you, so it's never uh, it's never work. So it's great to talk to you and great to see you. So you have some news. So I, I somebody from your organization actually reached out to us, and uh, and we said, oh yes, let's have him back. So let's uh, first catch up on your big news. Yeah, sure. So we uh, we did big closings on our on our third fund. Uh, our our performance has been top five percentile in the industry. So we've been uh, doing a, a great job. And so things have been, you know, chugging along at SineWave. We're really excited. And what is the size of the third fund? The third fund, we're, we're in the middle of uh, kind of the two, the, the first closing and the final closing, but it'll be uh, around 150, I think, in the end, 150. 150, okay. Well, um, let's, since you've been doing this for, for some time now and we've already had a conversation, why don't we start with some of your big successes? You have good performance. You're, you know, raising a third fund. So um, let's start with the with the case studies of what you have been successful with. And as you are telling us the stories, tell us about how these people came to you. The entrepreneurs. When did you meet them? At what stage? And what was it about them that caught your attention to begin with to decide to invest? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll break that up into little parts and kind of go through it. And feel free to interrupt if you have questions, Shermana, along the way. But so at SineWave, what we do is we kind of uh, own our own swim lane in venture. We're a little bit different than other funds. What we do is we invest in commercial enterprise tech, so data, cloud security, systems infrastructure. So as I go through the examples, you see most of our companies are of that nature, right? Um, and we help open up a commercial vertical. So these are like baby Microsofts, not baby Lockheeds, but they can also be big uh, commercial companies with public sector revenue streams that make them bigger returns. So among the ones that uh, we have a very concentrated portfolio, so we only do about four or five deals a year. So a little bit different than some of the index fund models of venture. Um, yeah. And so we're very picky about how we find those deals and how we select them. So among the ones that um, I could talk about early now uh, have been big successes and we have SC to AB, I should say. So all early stage investing. Um, so a lot of people know Databricks. They've been in the no news recently uh, again. And so they're kind of always in the news with the Snowflake Databricks and now Teradata kind of popping into that world a little bit. Um, so they're expected to be uh, one of the biggest tech IPOs ever. So we're in Databricks early. Um, another example, you know, Sentinel One, uh, which was the biggest cyber IPO ever, is one of our early stage investments. They went, uh, they went public uh, earlier in the year, and so they've been doing fantastically well. Um, we also had a physical security company called Evolve go public. Uh, we have another company, Rescale, that's on a public path. Uh, we had an acquisition in Jump Bikes, and our and our fund two companies are doing really well as well. We have a, a thermoplastics printing company called Aon 3D that's really broken out of the gates, um, and in the agriculture vertical slash, some people would also uh, consider it uh, having a climate tech impact. 
uh, cloud agronomics is also kind of doing fantastically well as an early stage business. So those are some of the examples. Um, and then how those deals have come to us are, are really all different ways. You know, a lot of people think VCs just share deals with each other and we do, but it's usually less from that vein because you're usually not always showing the one that's the best because you want to keep it to yourselves, right? So, uh, so I think most of our, uh, our best deal flow comes from other entrepreneurs who we've invested in um, or mm -hmm. some of the corporate and public sector relationships we work with. So as part of SignWave, we have partnerships and relationships with some of the big Fortune 500 and also the government agencies of all different types. And we use them in diligence uh, we talk to them about theses. We talk to them about where their businesses are going. And so they will often say to us, hey, we've seen this great company. We've seen that great company. That's actually how we met Sentinel One. We had a thesis on endpoint security before it was popular. Um, and the CTO at Defense actually said, you should talk to this company, Sentinel One. I've never seen anything like it. I agree with your thesis. So SineWave is a very thesis-focused place, which I think helps us narrow our universe, right? We we. We have a vision of where the world is going to be in several years or where we want the world to be and think it will go. Uh, and then backtrack from there to say, okay, what are the foundational technologies you need in order for the world to operate that way, right? And so we target you know, an endpoint security thesis. We found Sentinel-1 actually in that case through defense. We targeted a real-time streaming analytics thesis, which was post, uh, you know, at the time back then when we did Databricks, it was all kind of data at rest, right? Not streaming real time. So we're looking for that. And that deal actually came to us because uh, Databricks was trying to do a deal with the intelligence community and um, they didn't, uh, they were speaking a different language. And so both the intelligence community and the VCs at the time said, you should talk to SineWave. So that's how we got into Databricks, for example. Um, and, and so I think and the most important part though, for, for your entrepreneurs and your listeners, who I know you've worked with over the years, especially at the early stages, is to really build that relationship pre-financing. Sometimes it happens during the financing because things happen quickly, right? Uh, but to really get exposure to how does the entrepreneur think? Are you on the same wavelength as for vision of the company, right? Is this a defensible technology? Can it distinguish itself beyond that from a market product perspective? Right? Can, is the entrepreneur coachable? Are we as VCs gonna actually be able to help you? Right? Um, so that we could make the investment get across the finish line, right? Those are kind of key questions we ask whenever we meet an entrepreneur. So let me ask you a, a very specific double click down question on stage. So when something fits your investment thesis from a sector point of view, what do you want to see in the company when you're doing a seed investment? What is the, you know, what is the earliest stage check that you're comfortable writing and what do you want to see? Do you want to see paying customers? Do you want to see a certain MRR, ARR? What's, what is the desire these days? You know, it's funny. A lot of these firms have these like what I would call nonsensical rules, right? Um, you've got to have this much in revenue. You've got to have this many users. Um, I really think uh, some of that is indicative of how a startup is performing and what maybe what price is, right? In terms of valuing the deal, right? Uh, for the financing. But I don't think it should be a barrier whatsoever. But for us, our seed deals, our earliest stage deals, and I know now what seed is and A is and B is kind of all morph sometimes <laughs> today, but um, our seed deals, it's not pure tech risks in that there's usually a product already developed. 
it may not have all the features. It may not be at scale. It's an right. early stage um, product, but it is deployed in some way so that you can test it and play with it and companies could use it if they wanted. Uh, we look for obviously foundational technologies, fantastic team, but the other kind of key characteristic that I think also narrows that down is we look for someone to have either, they could have a customer, more often at the seed stage, it's partners that they're working with, big corporate partners in their business or public sector partners in their business line, or a design partner, what I call kind of a design partner, which are these entities and these big kind of companies and agencies that will work with you knowing that you know your tech's not perfect but when it does get perfect it's going to be great for our business so we're going to experiment and put in sweat equity with you those are kind of the the things we look for in our seed deals um and so that's uh, it's not the pre-seed where it's kind of just someone in a room is not so much what we do um but the seed where you kind of have developed something and are trying to figure out now where it goes in the market and how to grow it and how to build the tech that is comfortable for us and only enterprise and government uh, customers, yeah? Yeah, so in fact, our companies always have to have commercial customers, but often do not have government customers. We actually don't like things focused on... You don't like we government don't, We customers. don't like companies that look at government as the first uh, vertical or commercial success, right? We want, them to, we want them to be working with commercial Fortune 500 types or regular business customers, and then we will help on top of that open up that vertical. So kind of like Databricks, where their first okay. sets of customers were industrial and healthcare, and now they have a big public sector business that we help them build. That kind of Got example. It. Now, um, what about geography? Are you still everywhere? Yeah, you know, interestingly, geography is another one that VCs tend to have a uh, somewhat irrational perspective on, although there are some, there is some logic to geography. Um, our geographical centers, by the nature of being an enterprise tech firm, right, are typically Silicon Valley, Israel, and Boston. You have some in New York, some in Austin, Texas. You know, there's different pockets where we have source deals and done deals. Um, we're actually about to do a deal in the, the Research Triangle in Raleigh-Durham. So I think there are different places where deals are. Uh, and we have one or two international ones, but most of our deals are certainly focused on the U.S. market to start. Um, yeah. and are primarily domestic deals. Some of the nature also of working with the public sector, you can't do deals in certain countries, right? Like, so we couldn't do a deal in China, as an example, um, in order to open up that market for our startups. But I do think that the, 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 the reason geography matters to some extent is from a high level perspective, you wanna make sure that the talent and the, and the resources for building, you know, the, the financing, quite frankly, for building that business is, you know, around that orbit, right? But for us as SineWave, the most important thing is, can we actually come into your office and, and work with you and be with you and help you build, right? I think the most meaningful relationships a VC builds with entrepreneur and the most impact in a positive way that VC can have on an entrepreneur is by digging in right, and becoming part of their team to some extent. And so for us, as long as we can get there by a plane in a reasonable time frame, we are happy to, to make an investment. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, a, there's been a distinct trend. I came to Silicon Valley in 1996, end of 1996. So it was very much your point of view at the time, right? People wanted to invest within five miles of their location in Silicon Valley and everything else is outside of their orbit, but it's been a really interesting um, evolution of the trend. And part of what's, what we are seeing a lot of is 
um, people building their larger development centers elsewhere outside of Silicon Valley just because they cannot compete with the talent war, they cannot complete, compete with the cost of living. That's one driver, but there's another big driver that is there's a lot of technology development, including enterprise software technology development, including AI and data uh, stuff happening elsewhere. India has been incredibly productive. Europe has started producing a lot of interesting enterprise companies. So the so global, uh, you know, they want global customers and they want to set up shop in the U.S., in, whether it's in Silicon Valley or Boston or wherever. Uh, European firms often prefer the East Coast just because of the time difference and the quicker flight time and all that. But but we are seeing these kind of, you know, a, a headquarter maybe somewhere in the U.S. in one of the U.S. capitals and then the rest of the team somewhere else. Is that a model that you are okay with? Oh, yes. Yeah. So we've never been a five minutes away firm. I, I grew up at NEA as a VC, so was at a New Enterprise Associates for many years, as you know. Um, and, and we were always bi-coastal, right? DC, Silicon Valley. So it never really phased me about geography. I, as I was joking with you earlier, I live on a plane. So uh, it kind of is the reality of a VC's world. I do think you're absolutely right, by the way, about seeing the development teams being built elsewhere um, and more of the kind of business or sales teams or product teams being in the US. I've seen that uh, breakdown quite a bit. Um, Sent uh, Sentinel One was like that for many years and still has a, a significant element of that. We're actually looking right now, uh, I think we're about to do an investment in a company from India uh, that has their development team in India and is now building their uh, business team in the US. And so I do think that that, um, that divide is totally comfortable for most VCs. I think the, the one thing that I don't think we've gotten to yet is a, a lot of the venture funds have not figured out how to set up shop effectively in other places. So often the outreach needs to come inbound, right? So the, from those other places, if entrepreneurs can use their networks and reach out to folks in the US, I don't think there's necessarily, uh, no, we can't talk to you, you're not in the United States type of thing, or you're not in the Valley, or you're not down the block. Um, but I think the outreach of, you know, kind of being in those ecosystems and environments is hard to do, right? To be in too many ecosystems at once. So some firms have franchised, some have built satellite offices, some have, you know, try to just expand their existing offices, some with success, some without. But I think that the uh, the trend of seeing these companies that are global and international is definitely true. I think your uh, insight well, is correct. And, and there's some corridors that are very well developed, right? The Israel Silicon Valley corridor has always been extremely well developed and it works very well. The India Silicon Valley corridor is very mature. There are firms that specifically focus on bringing people through that corridor and, and, you know, India start, but then, you know, global market, Israel start, but then global market. These, uh, these corridors are very well developed at this point, I would say. Yeah, I think they operate a little differently, though. Like, so for India, I find that a lot of the firms set up a firm. They have an office and a, and a, and a, a satellite office, for example, in India and an India team, most really? of the firms. In Israel, there's a little bit of that, but most of the VC funds have pulled back from having their actual own offices there, yet they still hunt there, to your point. So there is definitely a stream of deal flow and relationship and communication between the geographies. I think that's right. 
Um, and, and so as those ecosystems change, VCs adjust, right, to be able to work with the best entrepreneurs. Yeah. Now, what, um, how is your thesis evolving as we are, um, you talked about uh, SignWave being a thesis-oriented fund. You have, you know, found deals aligned with your thesis in the past and have had a lot of success. What about looking out? What are you looking for? Yeah. That would be a good indicator for our audience to understand what kind of things you're looking for. Yeah, so our thesis has always been uh, uh, foundationally the same in that we're looking for ultimately a data-driven decision-making world for large enterprises. The government okay. is just another set of large enterprises. So what gets you there? Um, so I, and the thesis evolves within those different parts as you go along, right? So for example, in fund one, we were looking for the next generation of cybersecurity, which was endpoint, which is why we bet on central one, which has now become the, the um, paradigm of the day for security. We don't actually see, however, going into fund three, that next paradigm having emerged yet, actually. Uh, there is some talk about it. We haven't seen anything real in our, in our opinions. So we actually view security as becoming part of a systems-based approach to technology. So when we look at a network company or a, a data platform or uh, any uh, communications platform, security needs to be part of that, right? Not an add-on or an independent company. There will be still great independent security companies, but for what we're looking for, we think it becomes more system-based. We're looking a lot in the supply chain space. We think that uh, data security systems will be incredibly relevant there and has always been, but is, is particularly top of mind nowadays. Um, but I think the biggest trend we've seen at SignWave that's been a huge advantage for us is typically VCs will tell you they invest in platform technologies, right? So technologies like a Sentinel One or a Databricks where any company could use it. Doesn't matter what sector you're in or business you're in, it applies to everything. We still do that. That's a, a huge amount of our portfolio. Yet we also at SignWave are very comfortable going deep on the vertical side of things rather than just horizontally. So I think you could build multi-billion dollar businesses in uh, verticals that aren't as familiar to the valley sometimes, right? Like agriculture, uh, climate tech is now one of those verticals that has emerged. Insurance is one a lot of people talk about. Um, manufacturing, right? And how you do physical, you know, cyber physical systems and infrastructure technologies. Those are areas where the valley's not as well you know, plugged in or connected, but these are huge buyers and huge companies. So cloud agronomics, for example, that I mentioned earlier, Shromana, they are a, a vertical company up and down the ag tech stack, right? So they can help you analyze soil and agriculture over billions of acres in real time. They can help you understand the carbon sequestration in your particular land, right? And so they do a lot of different, they could talk about yields for the financial community. So they're able to do a lot of things in one particular vertical well. Um, I think that that is also a unique part of our thesis that we see um, becoming even more and more relevant because you can't just apply the same thing. To, it's trying that you can't put the same key in every lock, right? And so, and some of those locks are, have very big prizes behind them if you can figure it out. Yeah, this is something we're watching very closely and doing a lot of case studies on. Um, part of the issue is that to build a solution for a vertical that is, you know, esoteric to the Silicon Valley technologist, you need domain knowledge, right? The, the metadata, the, the heuristics of a domain like soil analysis, a Silicon Valley engineer doesn't have that domain knowledge to even frame it. You know, somebody else 
who has that domain knowledge frames it, then the engineer can do the plumbing of it. But the actual domain knowledge, the vision of what what problem needs to be solved and how, that exists in the head of uh, people who probably don't really know AI or know technology. How how are you seeing this? Uh, this gap being bridged in the vertical cloud space? It is a great question and it's the right question. And that comes down to team. And you're absolutely right. You need to find teams that have merged technologists with business people who are in the field, right? So people who understand that dynamic. So one of the things we loved about cloud agronomics, which is now called perennial, uh, is that they had the agriculture business folks combined with the brilliant technologists of the Valley type you know, profile, let's call it, right? And so putting those two together was able to be very effective. It's one of the critiques I've lodged against the, um, not against, but about some of the blockchain technology we've seen, right? Uh, one of the issues with blockchain or had been, we're actually looking at a company now, we just issued a term sheet for a company that uses blockchain as part of its solution. Um, so we like, we do like the, the concept and the technology, but you have a lot of, you know, 21, 22 year olds who've never worked in a business ever claiming to create products for, you know, large industrial systems and, and companies that they know nothing about how they work, right? And so you've only recently started to see a maturity level where you're bringing in deep, you know, vertical, deep people with vertical business experience alongside these innovative younger technologists who know this new space and know how to build around it. And that's when exciting companies pop up rather than kind of just, you know, fads of the day. Bear with me if I pursue this a little bit further. This is kind of top of mind for me right now. No, um, go for it. How do these teams come together, right? Who, I mean, how, how do you put these kinds of expertise together, right? These like hardcore AI expertise, deep tech expertise is not sitting inside the manufacturing company or the ag tech or agricultural companies' uh, weeds. So where where is that domain expert meeting the high-tech expert and, and coming together with a company? So a lot of this has to do with uh, people and networks and relationships, right? So people always ask me, the government, you know, you, you can't know everyone everywhere, right? Like that's kind of a, a basic premise of relationships oh. and networking. We have a bunch of relationships across most, you know, the Fortune 500, the government entities, there's lots and lots of folks, but you don't know everyone. The way you access everyone and link to everyone is by knowing the key nodes, right? The people who are those innovative thinkers in these places, the ones doing the outreach, the ones trying to solve the problems and find and recognize, I don't have this in my organization. I don't have this DNA in my organization. How do I find that, right? And so they're the hunters, they're the forward thinkers, they're the early adopters, right? And there's usually a few of those in any one organization, right? Um, not a ton, but there's usually some, right? And so making those linkages and understanding who those people are is I think how you get things done in these spaces. So for example, if you're a um, agriculture head of uh, whatever, uh, you know, maybe you're, the, you're the, the chief data scientist for, you're the head of data or analytics for an agriculture company, or you're responsible from a business perspective of managing yields and understanding, you know, quality assurance, for example, things like that, then you are more likely to do, and if you're one of these innovative nodes who knows how to work across your organization and with the broader ecosystem, you may be reaching out to different technologies you see developing where that's happening, right? 
Um, I think that that is, you know, those linkages are hard to find. You're absolutely right, which is why there's only so many great deals, which is why we only do four or five a year rather than 300 a year. Um, but finding those linkages is where the is where the kind of secret sauce comes in. And where are you looking right now for what verticals do you think are underserved where you think such large opportunities exist? What kind of verticals are you looking for at the moment? Yes, yeah, so we've made a few different bets in, in the, in, we have a bet in the ag tech space, like I mentioned, we've done a few in the health insurance space um, and the health tech space. We are, uh, I think, more increasingly looking in the manufacturing and industrial spaces. Um, mm -hmm. we, we really like the, the, we, we like, uh, the thesis about, we like, uh, we think that cyber fit, sorry, excuse me. We think that cyber physical systems is an interesting place, you know, so software as it applies to real life hardware and things and how you deal IoT, with the internet of things, kind of IOT, stuff. internet of things. Yeah. But, um, in specific spaces, uh, I think robotics, uh, elements can be interesting more of the software play than the hardware play there. Uh, but I think that that's an interesting space as well. So these are some examples of the different verticals. Um, and then, of course, we still do look and, and I would say, you know, a good like 60, 70 percent of what we do is the, is the platform place that apply to everything. But understanding the verticals on top of the horizontal platform concept allows you to help those companies hone their business use cases to different places, right? One of the things, uh, Databricks, for example, every company, even the big rocket ships like Databricks, learn things over time and have bumps in the road, right? So Databricks as a horizontal platform applies to everything, and they had customers across everything. And about midway through their life cycle realized, in order to really be the most effective company, we need to streamline this in order and really make sure we're servicing a particular vertical exceptionally well and go, and be, and go from vertical to vertical as we grow without necessarily sacrificing the other ones, which they never did, right? They kept the other ones, um, which is why they said, all right, what are the ones we wanna hone first? And so they honed industrial, healthcare, and public sector, and they continue to hone more and more verticals. I think that that for your entrepreneurs on the call is an effective strategy, right? You want to be a platform, but you want to focus. This is where the pivot concept of focus on one particular element, doing it well and doing it great, and then move to the next. If that didn't work, then move to the next, right? You always wanna have a next, but you don't wanna do, you don't wanna boil the ocean all at once. Right. So the other, uh, on in what you said, the other things that, other trend that we are tracking quite closely, and you may have seen my writings on this is platform as a service, right, SaaS. So in this category, in this sector in particular, the data platform, uh, data and analytics platform, it makes a lot of sense for a, a, a number of very significant SaaS companies to emerge. And as you said, it has to go to market as a vertical solution. Kind of, it's hard to go to market Correct. as a platform company to begin with. So it has to go in as a platform company. But, um, but since you have companies that are mature, uh, what is your analysis on at what point can a company that is doing vertical solutions in specific verticals switch to being a platform company and what have you seen work oh well i think platform companies apply to verticals so i think you can have a platform within a specific vertical a platform as a service company in fact i think that's really important because i think you need to understand and this is key for every entrepreneur and i think probably one of the biggest challenges actually for technologists and, and innovators is 
how does this platform with all of its many solutions and, and features and opportunities actually work in your day-to-day -day business, right? A company doesn't, this is something we train our entrepreneurs in uh, when uh, we're bringing the Valley to the public sector. The Valley is all about what you could do and all the experimentation and all the vision, whereas the actual enterprise customer and the government in, in, in the case when we some are, are often working with them, want to know this is reliable, usable, deployable now, right? And it's gonna solve this problem that I know I have now. That's if you right. go in and try to, it's, it's a really, I think it's not the best strategy to go in and think that the customer is not going to be creative with you. I think that's very rare. It happens sometimes, uh, that's what design partners are for, but it's rare that the customer is gonna be creative. They're gonna say, wow, this is an amazing platform and it was a nice right. meeting they and want it to goes solve They wanna solve problems. That's exactly yeah. right. So these platform companies, whether, you know, I think the ones built based on a vertical are particularly exciting because they understand the specific problems. And so to right. part of your question as well, Shramana, the ones that are across many verticals I think struggle until they can hone those vertical specific applications of their platform. And that's yeah. how you build. And once you land one of those particular applications, then you could say, hey, we also can do this for this other part right. of your business. And that's how it grows and expands. So in the early stages, we don't recommend companies to go position as a platform company at all. Even if they have a platform, they kind of need to find a problem to solve with their, that their platform offers particular defensible edge in. But, uh, you know, let's say a series C company or series D company, or maybe a post IPO company can look at starting to do a full-fledged path ecosystem, developer ecosystem. And there are two things we see. One is, the system integrators have the domain knowledge and they take the platform and go build other solutions on top. The one that really excites me is, uh, is you know, platforms that work with startup ecosystems and have startups that have domain knowledge build solutions on top of that. And of course, there haven't been that many companies that have succeeded in doing this. Salesforce is the classic example. You know, Viva came out of the Salesforce.com ecosystem, Velocity came up uh, out of the uh, uh, the Salesforce.com ecosystem. There really are maybe a couple of companies, Twilio and Atlassian, that is doing a successful path strategy in that sense. We haven't seen a lot of, you know, startups that are vertical cloud startups building on other people's platforms quite yet as well. But that is, I think that is a wide open opportunity for vertical clouds. Yeah, it's interesting how this space will evolve. Um, I think that we've had it in a different form, right? I think AWS's marketplace, right? Azure's marketplace, those are that concept. That's what they were founded on. It's that right? concept, but it doesn't have the full stack of- Correct, it's, it's more that's the, exactly. It's a layer below, right? Exactly, it's, it's and so that, that's- Yes, and that's what I that's what I mean by, you know, we're seeing how that now that interim layer develops, right? And I think that that could be exciting. And I do know that there are several uh, well-known startups that are a little later stage that are starting to experiment with this. Um, and I think that that is definitely uh, an interesting space going forward. Yeah. 
All right. Well, you are on vacation, so I will let you go and uh, enjoy yourself. It was great talking to you. Thank you for coming, and uh, we'll talk later. Thanks, Shramana. It's great to see you, and good luck to all the entrepreneurs on the call. Uh, wishing you the best. Bye-bye.